Well, this morning, we end uh, our three-year journey. We come to the end of our three-year journey through the Gospel of Mark. And and although we did have some other stops along the way of this three-year journey, other preaching from other sections of the Bible during these three years, we, we have spent an awful lot of time in the Gospel of Mark. And I thought you might find it interesting to know how much time we actually spent in this book. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark containing 678 verses made up of 11,300 words, give or take a few. Um, And we covered all of those 16 chapters, 678 verses, 11,300 words in 94 sermons, including this morning's message. Now, after my very first sermon in this book, um, in which I covered the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark, Chris Miller guesstimated that it would take me 13 years to finish the Gospel of Mark. So thankfully, I've done good. I've come in under that number. But to prepare those 94 messages, 16 chapters, 678 verses, 11,300 words over these last three years, I calculated that I put in a little more than 1,800 hours of study. So... I've spent a few hours in the Gospel of Mark, and I actually spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Mark, but and I think those of you who study the Bible, you know this, even after spending all that time in the Gospel of Mark, I don't feel like I've mastered the book. You know? I mean, isn't that the way the Word of God is? The more time you spend in it, the more you just find it's, its richness and its depth. Uh, I don't feel like I've mastered the book, but I, I will tell you, I, I have developed a deep love and admiration for the Gospel of Mark. I really feel blessed to have been able to spend so much time walking with Jesus in the pages of Mark. And I hope, I hope you do as well. I hope you do as well. Um, if you've listened to every sermon in the series, you've listened to around 4,700 minutes of preaching, or, or a little north of 78 hours of preaching. So if you've listened to every message, and if you haven't, hey, you need to get caught up. They're on the website, so you need to listen to them. <laughs> But all I say, we, all of us, we've spent a lot of time in this rich and wonderful book of the Bible. But as I was thinking about how much time we have spent in this book, a very important warning from another book of the Bible came to mind. This is from the book of James, and many of you are familiar with this verse, but I think it bears repeating this morning. This is from James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. James writes to his readers, and he says, But be doers of the word... And not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing, or she will be blessed in her doing. You see, our call is not just to hear, but it's to what? To do. Our call is to be doers of the word and not hearers only. The blessing comes, according to James, in the the doing, in the doing. So what I was thinking that we all need to be reminded of this morning is that knowing the truth about Jesus is, is just the start. Knowing the truth about Jesus is just the start. As as we've been confronted by this truth about Jesus, as Mark has answered the questions for us, who is Jesus and why did he come? The truth, that truth, those answers, they need to get a hold of us. 
They need to challenge us. They need to convict us. Most importantly, they need to change us. That truth needs to change us. And that's really what's at the heart of Mark's third question. Remember those three questions? I've repeated them numerous times. Those three questions. The first question was, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Mark has shown us. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. He is the anointed one. That's what the word Christ or Messiah means. He's the anointed one over God's eternal kingdom. And this anointed one, this Christ, is also the divine one. The beloved and obedient and only Son of God. The one who revealed God to us in coming to save us. And that's why he came. Remember, that was Mark's second question. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Why did he come? Jesus came to reveal the kingdom of God to us and to, remember what Mark told us? Give his life as a ransom for many. He came to show us the kingdom and then make a way for us to enter into the kingdom. He came to to purchase us out of the slave market of sin and to bless us with redemption, to bless us with life in the kingdom of God. But the answer to those first two questions leads us to Mark's third question. Remember, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And the third question how will you respond? How will you respond? Now, as we've worked through the gospel, Mark, Mark has given us a pretty full answer to that question already. He's taught us time and time again what true discipleship looks like. It looks like faith and surrender to Jesus Christ. It's embracing that life of being a follower of Jesus, right? Which means what? If Jesus is going this way, which way am I going? This isn't rocket science, right? I'm, going, I'm a follower of Jesus. So what Jesus says, that's what I do. I walk in obedience to him. So Mark has shown us that. But, but I think going back to that third question, how should we respond? I think that's important for us to do this morning as we wrap up this study. And, and I, I want us really to think through that third question. I want you to really think about that third question this morning. And here's how I want you to think about it. How, how will you and how have you as we've three years in this book? How will you, how have you responded to the Jesus that we've met in the pages of the Gospel of Mark? How will you, how have you responded to the Jesus that we've met in the pages of the Gospel of Mark? Again, knowing the truth about Jesus is just the start. It's just the start. Knowing brings us to that place of decision. It brings us to that place of response. And this morning, as we close out this book... We're going to find the disciples of Jesus in that place. We're going to see how they ultimately responded to who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And my prayer for us this morning is that in seeing their response, we'll find a pattern for our own response. In seeing their response, we'll find a pattern for our own response. We will follow them in following Jesus. So, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark for our last time in this series, and turn over to chapter 16. Turn over to chapter 16. And as we come to chapter 16, thus far in this book, Mark has shown us the ministry of Jesus. We've seen his teaching, watched these powerful miracles. We've watched him tell the wind and the waves, silence, and they've obeyed him. We've watched the ministry of Jesus. We've watched the trial of Jesus. we watched him stand with integrity, 
but still be condemned as a blasphemer because of the wickedness of men's hearts. We watched the trial. We watched him be rejected. We watched him brutally suffer. Remember that Friday, that Friday of the crucifixion, brutally suffer, and we watched him hang upon that cross. We watched him pay for our sins. Again, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer was, he was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken, that we would be accepted. We watched him crucified, watched him buried. Then last Sunday, we got to celebrate together the glorious truth of his resurrection. So Mark has shown us all of those things thus far in this book. And now, starting in verse 9 of this chapter, we find the account of the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry with his disciples. We find recorded here his resurrection appearances to them, his commissioning of them, and then his ascension back to the Father. However, as this gospel account concludes, we find ourselves in one of the more challenging sections of the gospel of Mark. And it's challenging not because of some interpretive issue or because of some difficult teaching. It's challenging because of doubts about the authenticity of these final verses in the book of Mark. Uh, now, many of you, if you look at your Bibles, maybe it's on an iPad or phone or you have a paper copy, but you find in your English Bibles, you find either some, some brackets above this section or a line, and then you see something that says something like the following. The, the following verses are not found in the earliest manuscripts. How many of you see that there? Okay, good. Everybody. So what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes to help you understand the reason for those brackets, that, that line, or, or those comments. And in order to do that, what I want to do is take a few moments just to talk about our English Bibles and how that plays into this debated ending of the Gospel of Mark. So let's talk for a few moments about, about the Bibles that you hold in your hand. Let's talk about your English Bible. First, first thing is this. Realize that it is a blessing. Amen. It is a blessing. We are so blessed to have the Word of God in our own language. Amen? There there are people around the world that do not enjoy that blessing. They don't have that blessing. But but it's important for us to understand that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Everybody, I think, here knows that. The Bible wasn't originally written in English. Originally, the Scriptures were recorded in Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament and in Greek for the New Testament. So what, what we have, what we get to study each and every week is a translation from those original languages. You have an English translation of the Bible that was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And scholars, experts in those those languages, have worked really hard to bring you a faithful translation of of God's holy word so that it is both accurate and readable. And we praise God for that. I got to tell you this story. Once I was was working in children's church with the, the little guys, and we had some visiting missionaries. And one of those visiting missionaries was a Wycliffe Bible translator. And one of the kids, and I don't know, maybe he was six or seven, not very old. But he's sitting in the front row, and he's got his Bible on the ground, and he's kicking it with his feet. And I look over, and this translator, this missionary, looks mortified. And he he reaches over, and lovingly, he picks it up and says, this is precious. And it was just such a good reminder. We have something, we take it for granted, right? How many, how many of you have more than one English Bible in your home? Yeah. This isn't just rare in the world today. This is rare in history. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of places in church history, that there was one Bible that was shared. So, so we, are, we are blessed to have the Word of God 
in our own language. So it's just such a privilege, and again, it's not a privilege that everyone is able to have. Now, another thing to note about the Bible that you hold in your hand is that it is an ancient book. It was originally written in other languages, and it's an ancient book. Uh, originally, it was recorded a long time ago. The books like, uh, like Genesis and Numbers, books originally written by Moses, those are some 3,400 years old. 3,400 years. Mark's gospel was probably written around 64 to 68 AD, so it's one of the newer ones, just a little less than 2,000 years old. So, so our Bibles are a translation of a collection of ancient documents. A translation of a collection of ancient documents. And in transmitting these ancient documents down through the centuries, these documents needed to be copied. Um, <clears throat> but they didn't have copy machines. Couldn't scan them in and just produce 35, 40 copies. They'd be copied by hand. And I, I just let me remind you, I, I know you know these things, but I think it bears repeating. The, the Bible as it was, was originally given, it wasn't, it wasn't a hard-bound, it wasn't a book, you know, leather-bound or hardback. It wasn't some some digital version on a smartphone. It was handwritten on scrolls. And and some books of the Bible were actually so large that they took multiple scrolls, like the book of Isaiah was multiple scrolls. And again, those were handwritten. And so as those scrolls would wear out or somebody else wanted another copy of those scrolls, and what you had to do is by hand copy those documents out. And many in the, these ancient cultures, as they would copy these, uh, they copy those documents with extreme care and extreme reverence. A good example, is some of you have heard of this, but the, uh, the Masoretic scribes, how many of you have heard of the Masoretic scribes? Those are the ones co- responsible for copying the Old Testament. And, and as the Masoretes copied, they viewed their work as a sacred trust. They, they would meticulously go over every new copy they produced. They would count word by word and letter by letter. And if there was the slightest variation, guess what happened to that copy? They tossed it out and they started over again. I mean, that's, that's how serious they were about this work. So they went letter by letter, word by word, to make sure it was an exact replica. But the thing is, not everyone was as careful as the Masoretes. Uh, when you come into the New Testament and you have books like Philippians or Romans or First. Timothy, those books were originally letters. Those were letters. Those were letters written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people. So if you wanted to read that letter, you either needed to be part of the church in Philippi that received the letter to the Philippians, part of the churches in Rome that received the letter to the Romans. You needed to be Timothy or at the church of Ephesus where he received those letters of First and Second Timothy. Or you need to have somebody make you a copy. You need to have somebody make you a copy. And as the church grew and it became more clear that the writing of the apostles was just as much the word of God as the Old Testament, the desire to have copies of Paul's letters or Peter's letters or John's letters or books like the Gospel of Mark, that desire grew. Lots of people wanted copies. But again, didn't have copy machines, didn't have scanners, so they needed someone to produce those copies by hand. And some copies were better than other copies. Some copies, again, were meticulously done, but others, unfortunately, were not. So over time, you had the rise of what scholars call textual variants, copies that didn't agree with one another. Not, not losing you yet this morning. This is, okay, I want you to be able to follow me. But they had the rise of what called textual variants, so copies that didn't agree with one another. Now, 
I want this to be clear as we talk about this morning. God, in his grace and his care for the church, he allowed the number and the nature of those variants to be very, very minimal. Very, it's amazing. When you compare it with other ancient documents, it's, it's staggering how few and far between the variants are. But here's the thing. When we're talking about other ancient documents, those are just the writings of men. This is the writings of who? This is the word of God. So when you're dealing with the word of God, you want to make sure that you're getting it right. Right? I mean, you don't want to be basing your theology on some mistake some copyist made 1,600 years ago because they weren't paying attention to what they're doing. You want to get it right. So scholars, experts in ancient culture and linguistics and ancient documents have worked very hard, very hard, to comb through these variants. And their work, their field, is called textual criticism. Textual, now that might sound like a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a good thing. These very gifted scholars do the work of weeding out those errant copies. And, and a lot of things that they find are things like spelling errors or a scribe was copying a text and they recopied a section of a verse. So they were looking at one verse and they're writing. Then they come down and they put that verse in again. Or there was maybe a, a note that a scribe had put in the margin. Like we have our study notes in our Bible. And a copyist made an error and put that into part of the text. But all that to say, those type of errors are very easy for them to spot. So a lot of the, the things that they're looking for are those kinds of things. But there are a few places, just a few, where scholars still debate the authenticity of the text. And of those few, two of them are, are rather larger sections of text. We're not talking about a word or a line We're talking about several verses. There's two of these in the New Testament. One is found in the Gospel of John. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And there's debate about whether or not John actually put that story in his Gospel account or if a scribe added it in later on. Now, most scholars do believe that those events actually took place, that that story is a true story, but the debate is about whether John originally put it in there or a copyist accidentally added a margin note, that section, into the text. And the reason for the debate is that some of the earliest and best copies that we have of the Gospel of John, they don't have that story in them. But a lot of later copies that are also reliable copies do, so scholars debate about that text. So that's one. The second one, where there is rather substantial debate about the text is our text here for this morning. Mark 16, 9 to 20. And there are several reasons why many scholars don't believe Mark actually wrote this portion of the text. The first is that just like with John 8, this ending of Mark isn't found in some of the oldest and best copies that we have. That's what that little note is there in your Bible. Um, Those copies, instead of having verses 9 to 20, instead they just end in verse 8. They end with the women running from the tomb, trembling in fear, not saying anything to anyone. And although that does seem like a strange way for Mark to end the book, um, there are other books in the Bible that end with a similar challenging account. One that comes to mind is the book of Jonah. That one kind of just seems to, to end. But in, in addition to that longer ending not being found in those early copies, those reliable copies, uh, the vocabulary of the ending of the Gospel of Mark here is different 
than what Mark has used throughout the rest of the book. Um, every week, some of you know this, every week I sit down with the Greek text and I do a translation of the text that I'm going to be teaching on. It's a good way for me to slow down and really look at the text. Well, as I was doing that this last week and working through this section, there were so many words that I hadn't seen anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. And even some of the ways things were phrased was like, that, that's different. There, there's a really different feel to this, this text. So, because of those differences in language and because of the absence of the section in some of the oldest and best copies, many scholars believe that some scribe added this ending to try to help out Mark's abrupt original first ending. And that might be the case. That might be the case. However, several of the early church fathers, so men who lived 100, 200, 300 years after Mark, uh, they do give evidence to being familiar with this longer ending, and they look at this longer ending as the original ending of Mark. And, and that, this longer ending has been the received and accepted ending of the Gospel of Mark for much of church history with Christians down through the centuries studying this, these verses. So here's the question. What do we do with this text? Do we accept it as the word of God? Because again, we're dealing with a translation of ancient documents. We want to make sure we get it right. So we accept it as the word of God or do we ignore it as some later edition? Well, here's the good news. And I'm sharing this good news with you because I was so glad when I put it all together myself. But here's the good news. Although I'm not certain that this longer ending was part of Mark's original document, the truths recorded here are truths testified to by the rest of the scripture. The truths recorded here are truths testified to by the rest of the scripture. God, again, God is so faithful to preserve his truth. Even in this area of debated text, we don't have some strange, weird doctrine. We have teachings that, that are affirmed other places in the scripture. So, so here's where I'm at with this. And I just want to be real transparent with you. Here's where I'm at with this. Here's my approach. Although we don't know for certain that this is, is the ending that Mark wanted for his book, we can be certain that these things that are listed here, talked about here, did happen after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things did happen. So in other words, this might not be the, the rest of Mark's story, but it is the rest of the story. It is the rest of the story. And so that's how I want to approach it this morning. I want to walk you through the things that are highlighted here, showing you how the other gospel writers affirm these events. We're going to look at this debated ending of Mark uh, through the lens of what we find in Matthew and in Luke and in John and in Acts. All right? That's how we're going to approach this. And what we find here, uh, right after the resurrection, is that the disciples struggled. They struggled to accept the truth that Jesus was alive. They, they were like hearers only at this point, who hadn't yet become doers of the word. They struggled to accept the truth that Jesus was alive. Their initial response to the revelation of who Jesus is and why Jesus came was doubt. Doubt. Is this, is this really who he is? Did he really rise from the dead? Look at verses 9 to 14. Here we find reference in verses 9 to 14 <clears throat> to three post-resurrection appearances by Jesus. And we see the unbelief of the disciples highlighted in each one of these. We read, Now when he, when Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, so that resurrection Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So they're still grieving over Jesus' death. But when they heard that he was alive, they rejoiced. No, when they heard that he was alive and being seen by her, what happened? They would not believe it. 
After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for what? For their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. He rebuked them for their initial response of doubt. Now, the first appearance highlighted here is Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. Remember, she was one of the women that we talked about last week, one of those first who had gone to the tomb and heard that announcement from the angel. And so she had heard that announcement, but what we find over in John's gospel is that she struggled as well to understand the empty tomb. Take a moment and turn over to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 20. And here, John tells us that after Mary had first gone to the tomb, and then, then she came back and she informed Peter and John about what she had found, she then returned to the empty tomb. And John here in chapter 20 describes her still struggling to understand what had happened. Look at, look at verse 11 and following. Chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood, and what's she doing? Weeping. Weeping outside the tomb. Not, not weeping for joy. She's still in mourning. And as she wept, she looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. You see, she she still thinks Jesus is dead, and she's looking for what? The body. But then something wonderful happened to Mary, starting in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, What? Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, which means exalted teacher. Jesus said what to her? He said her name, right? And as he says her name, what happens? She realizes who this is. And And here she meets the risen. She'd been to the empty tomb. She'd heard the announcement, but she still had the doubt until she, and we talked about this last week, until she met the risen Christ. And as soon as she meets the risen Christ, what happens to that doubt and fear? It fades away in the revelation of, of who he is, of his resurrection. So in verse 18, we read that she went and she told the other disciples all about it. But as Mark's text points out, they didn't believe her. They, they refuse to accept her eyewitness account. And, and that's confirmed by what we read over in the Gospel of Luke. So turn over to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning. But turn over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And here in verse 11, we read that the report of these women, so Mary and the other women who had been to the tomb... That this report, Luke tells us, verse 11, seemed like an idle tale to the disciples. And then look at the end of the verse. And they did not, what? Didn't not to believe them. They didn't believe those, these women. And they, they viewed it as just what? Oh, this is some idle tale. This is some imaginary story that these women have concocted. They're in their grief. They're overwhelmed. And they came up with this story. 
However, Jesus keeps appearing to people. He appears more and more to the disciples, and he challenges their unbelief. Back, back in Mark chapter 16, but stay there in Luke 24. But back in Mark chapter 16, we read that Jesus appeared in another form to two of them while they were walking into the country. And Luke records that event for us here right in Luke 24, in these next verses. And I got to tell you, I love this story here in Luke 24. Look, look at the text starting in verse 13. That very day, Luke 24, verse 13, that very day, so Resurrection Sunday, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, so just like in that initial encounter with Mary. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with one another as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? I love this little cat and mouse game going on here. And he said, and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of, our, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So here are these disciples, and who are they having a chat with? The risen Christ, right? But they think they're just chatting with who? Some, some ignorant stranger who, you don't know what's been going on? And then this stranger, at least stranger in their eyes, challenges their unbelief. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, what? When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody where you dropped that line on them? <laughs> oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. But here's the thing. They still don't get it. They still don't realize who this is. They, they think this is just some stranger with an amazing grasp of the Scriptures. But then, just like in the story with Mary, something amazing, something wonderful happened. Look at verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened at what happened. They recognize him. Isn't it cool to see this? It, Mary's name. Fellowship meal. You know, it's the relational things in which Jesus chooses to reveal himself to them. And, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn with us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the leaven and those who were gathered together, who, and those who were with them together, gathered together. Sorry about that saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So, so they tell the others, but as we read there in the Gospel of Mark, even with this report, the rest of the disciples still refused to believe. Turn back now 
to the Gospel of Mark. And here in chapter 16, verse 14, we read the account of Jesus' appearance finally to the rest of the disciples. And notice in the text, he begins by doing what? What does he first do with them? He rebukes them. He rebukes them for their unbelief. He challenges them. He challenges them for not accepting the, the message of these eyewitnesses. See, they had ha- failed to have faith in the testimony of these witnesses, and, and it revealed a lack of faith in what Jesus himself had been teaching them the whole time. I mean, Jesus had already told his men, this is what's going to happen. We've seen it as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, right? Jesus on multiple occasions, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 14, he's told them, when we get to Jerusalem, guys, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then after three days, I told them this every time, what's going to happen? I'm going to rise again. I'm going to rise from the dead. And yet they struggled. Yet they struggled. They, they heard the report of these eyewitnesses and said what? Oh, that's just some idle tale. That's just some foolishness they made up. They responded with unbelief to the reality of who Jesus is. So he rebuked them. Now, both Luke and John go into detail about, about this event, this meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And they, they explain, if we were to take time and go look at those, explain how Jesus had them touch his hands where the nails had pierced him and his side where the spear had pierced him. And, and he ate a meal with them. And he was showing them that it's really him. It's, it's really me, guys. It's the Jesus that you walked with, that you listened to, that you saw die. But now here I am, having defeated sin and death and the grave. And then as the risen Christ, he challenged the unbelief of his men. And he called them to move from being hearers only to become doers of the word. Doers of the word. In verses 15 to 18, we we find here this call for them to go. To go and to proclaim the message of the risen Christ, realizing what is at stake, and understanding the power that would be given them. Look at these verses, starting verse 15. And he said to them what? Go. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, there's some interesting things there, especially in those final verses. But what we find here is the commissioning of the disciples. Again, Jesus is calling them to go, to realize what is at stake in their going, and to understand the power that will accompany them. As they go. First, Jesus calls them to go and tell who? Everybody. Tell everybody. Jesus' men, now having seen the risen Lord for themselves, they are to go into all the world and proclaim that good news to everybody, to the whole creation. They are to preach the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to live and die and rose again on the third day for our salvation. And they're to preach it to anybody. And to everybody. 
Isn't it wonderful that his gospel and his kingdom isn't just for one ethnic group or one gender or one social class? It is the good news for everybody. Do you ever take time and just sit there and marvel at that? I mean, you think, I don't know, think back 2,000 years ago. I mean, this was all happening where? In, in, in the Middle East among the Jewish people. How many of you are from the Middle East? How many of you are Jewish? I mean, here we are in Washington State, and this glorious good news has come for 2,000 years all the way to us because it's the good news for everyone. Amen? Praise God. We get some silly thoughts sometimes to think, okay, this is what Christianity is. It just looks like me. No, it's the good news for everyone. Everyone has sinned. Amen? Everyone needs to be saved. Everyone needs to hear the message of the gospel, the glorious news that Jesus came to save any and all types of people. Amen? Anyone and everyone. All of sin, so all need to be saved. So Jesus says, go and tell everyone. And the commission that we find here in Mark, um, we find it also recorded for us by Matthew and by Luke. In the end of Matthew, in chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, and this is a familiar text, but we read that Jesus told his disciples this. Just listen to what he said. All authority. This is, that's such an important reminder. Sometimes when we go out and, and you know, we're going to share the gospel with people, our knees are knocking. We're afraid. How is this culture that's so antagonistic now, how are they going to respond to us? And Jesus says what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to who? To him. So we're going with this one that has all authority. Isn't that comforting to know? That we go, we go with a king, amen? We go with the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He says, it's been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of just the people that look like you. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And just in case you didn't get it the first time, he says it again. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm going with you. I'm going, you're going with my authority. So there's this call to go, this call to go to all nations and make other disciples of Jesus. And these new disciples, they're to be identified through baptism with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're to be taught to walk in all of Jesus' teaching. So, so that is how these men were to move from being hearers, right, to doers. They, they were to live lives that gave testimony to the reality of Jesus by introducing other people to him. Okay? That, you follow that? that? That's what it meant to go from being a hearer to being a doer. You were to live a life that gave testimony to the reality of Jesus by introducing other people to him. And so Matthew tells us that, and Luke tells us that of a similar of this commission as well. He records it actually in, in part two of his writing. Part one of Luke's writing is the Gospel of Luke. What's part two? The book of Acts, right? So Luke wrote both. He wrote the gospel to show us how it all got started. And then he wrote Acts to show us how it all spread. And so in Acts chapter one, Luke tells us about Jesus commissioning the disciples. And he tells us about... (laughs) Somebody is needed. (laughs) But in Luke chapter one, uh, or in Acts chapter 1, excuse me, Luke tells us about Jesus commissioning his disciples. And he tells us about a conversation 
that Jesus was having with his disciples. They had asked him, okay, the resurrection has happened now. Is now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're still focused on that. Jesus doesn't answer that question. Instead, he explains to them their mission. This is Acts 1, 7 and 8. He says, it's not for you, and I love this, still just putting them right in their place. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Okay? That's not for you guys. Or, or you guys. Or you guys. Or us. But here's your mission, he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that was, that was their mission, to go and be spirit-empowered witnesses, to go and make disciples, to go and proclaim the gospel to all creation. And their mission, brothers and sisters, is our mission as well. We continue the work that they started. But, but as they go, as we go, we need to realize what is at stake. Take a moment. I'm not going to read it, but I just want you to read it for a moment. Take a moment and look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 and let, let the words of verse 16 sink in. That's the reality of the situation, beloved. Ours is a saving message, and it is the only saving message. It's the only saving message. Those who reject the gospel have rejected the only means, the only way. There's not multiple roads that lead to God. They have rejected the only way to be delivered from their sins, delivered from God's judgment. They've rejected the only means of being given eternal life. So, so these men, these witnesses, they needed to go and proclaim, not because being a witness was, you know, paid good money, or because that was a fulfilling career path. But they didn't need to go and be witnesses because they had the only truth that can rescue a sinner from condemnation and grant eternal life. The only truth that can rescue and give eternal life. Take a moment, let that sink in. That's what they had, and guess what? That's what we have as well. That's what we have as well. It's, the gospel is not our opinion. It's not some helpful advice that we would like to share. It is the, we're dealing with eternal issues here. It is the only, the only thing that saves. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the only message, the only news that truly saves. We have the, that's what we call the gospel, the good news, Amen. We have the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works, but through faith in Jesus Christ, a person can be rescued from damnation. That's what we're dealing with here. Rescued from damnation and giving the blessing, not of a little better life right here and now, but what? Glory unimaginable for all eternity, dwelling in the presence of God himself. That's what we're talking about here. That's what's at stake. That's the news that we have. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes you get into the, the humdrum of life. You know, you're just going along in your rut. And you're just like, well, does my life have any meaning or purpose? I mean, I'm working my job, day in, but what difference does it really make? You're walking around with the greatest news, not in human history, but in 
universal history. I mean, a million years into eternity, what are we going to be rejoicing in? Finding our delight in? I'm going to be praising the lamb who was slain. Amen. That's what we get to walk around. That's what we get to share. And so he tells these men to go, realizing what is at stake. Realizing what is at stake. And so I asked us this morning, I asked myself, do we really understand what is at stake? Do we really understand what we've been entrusted with? Jesus, is un- Jesus challenges his men to realize what is at stake in their calling. But, but as they go and embrace this calling, Jesus tells them that they're going to have his power through the Holy Spirit to do this proclaiming work. And that there will be signs of this power accompanying them in their work. He says demons are going to be cast out. These witnesses will be empowered to speak in, in languages that they, they didn't ever learn or study or speak before. God will protect them from threats upon their lives. And he will give them power to bring healing into the lives of others. Here and in both the, the commissioning in Matthew and in Acts, it is stressed to these men that they will not go about this work alone. They will go with the presence and the power of God himself. And, and what we find, in the book of Acts especially, is that miraculous signs such as these recorded here in the end of Mark did accompany the works of those first disciples, of those apostles of Jesus. Demons were cast out. God did empower them to communicate the gospel in languages that they had never spoken before. Many threats upon their life were overcome by the power of God, and God blessed them with the ability to bring his healing to the sick. And so what we see here is a prediction of what would happen through the ministry of the apostles. Now, now I personally believe that this is a prediction of what would happen during the, the apostolic age that time when the New Testament scriptures were being given and the doctrinal foundations of the church being established. These miraculous signs accompanied the ministry of the apostles and those early disciples to make clear that their ministry was a continuation of the ministry and the teaching of Jesus Christ. But what we see, and you see this even as you read through the book of Acts, is that many of those sign gifts, they, they faded away with the close of the New Testament canon and the establishments of the teachings, the doctrines of the church. So, all that to say, now if you go pick up a snake, watch out that you don't get bit. If you go pick up a snake, watch, and don't go out there and be drinking any poison. Don't say, well, Mark said, don't go be drinking any poison. And and it would be wonderful. I've talked to a lot of missionaries about this. It would be wonderful if if every missionary that traveled into a foreign culture could just skip language school because they could just speak in languages to have that ability like those first disciples did. But, But these sign gifts that were so normal during that apostolic age have largely faded. But that doesn't mean that God is done with doing amazing and miraculous things. I don't believe God has stopped doing the miraculous. I mean, he saved me, and he saved you, right? Wasn't that a miracle? Wasn't that a miracle? I mean, think about this. He opened our eyes to see the truth. And I'm not talking about these flesh you know, physical eyes. I'm talking about spiritual eyes that didn't get it. I mean, maybe this was your experience. I know I've talked to a lot of people and had this, they had this experience. People share the gospel with them time and time again. And for a long, that's just foolishness. I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's good for you. That's not good for my life. That's a crutch you need. I don't need that. And then, by the power of God, you know, why was it different 
the 15th time from the 14th time. I don't know. The power of God and his sovereign working. In that moment, by the miraculous working of God, eyes open, ears unstop, and they can hear. Because the Spirit of God comes and takes out this heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that truly feels and understands the significance and cries out. I mean, do you remember that time of, of moving from Jesus makes no sense to me to Jesus is, is everything. He is my only hope. Is that a miracle? You better believe it. That might be the most miraculous thing any of us ever get to witness. That's the miracle that God still does every day. Praise God for that. Amen? Does that every day. And he does that. That miracle happened in our lives because these witnesses took the message of the risen Christ and didn't just hear it. They went and did what? They went and proclaimed it. They went and shared it. And, and, and that's the heart of Jesus' challenge to these men. Don't just see and hear, go and tell. Don't just see and hear, go and tell the truth about who I am and why I came. And that's the heart that they needed to embrace, and that's the heart that we need to embrace as well. Don't just be those who see and hear. I am glad that you're here on a Sunday morning. I'm glad that you've been here through the teaching and the gospel of Mark. I'm glad that you have listened and take the, taken these things in. But let's not be those who just see and hear. Let's be those who go and tell. Go and tell people who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Don't just see and hear, go and tell. Well, our text for this morning and this book in which we've been for the last three years closes with the words of verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The work that he had come here to earth to do was finished. And they went out and did what? Sat in their happy little houses and went back. No, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. These men, these men who had been, some of them, three years with Jesus, men who had heard him and seen him and walked with him, men who had been taught who Jesus is and why Jesus came, they responded by going and preaching everywhere the good news that Jesus saves. The good news that Jesus saves. So as I conclude, I think the most obvious question is, what about us? How will we respond? How, and I say this from time to time. How will you respond? Not just we as a group. Let's make it personal. How will you respond? Some of you have had months in this study. Some of you have had three years in this study. And for many of you, you've been walking with Jesus a lot longer than that. So let me just ask the honest question. What are you doing with what you've been given? What are you doing with what you've been given? With whom are you sharing the message that someone once shared with you? With whom are you sharing the message that was once shared with you? Praise God that these disciples didn't just learn these things and behold these things and then go back to being fishermen. Praise God that they responded to the truth of who Jesus is and why Jesus came by embracing him and then going and proclaiming him. So, so let's follow their example. 
Let's respond in the way that they responded to Jesus, by going and telling. I mean, let's praise God for the message of, of the book of Mark and that we've been given this time to, to really dive into it and dig into it and study it as intently as we have. But let's also make sure that this that we've been blessed with, that we respond to it in a way that honors our God by using it and sharing it. Don't be like that person who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. Take these truths. Drink them in. And go and use them. Because again, knowing the truth about Jesus is just the start. It's just the start. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise you for giving us this time, these three years in the Gospel of Mark, three years to walk with Jesus and learn from Jesus and be challenged by Jesus, and marvel at Jesus and be humbled by seeing our Savior and our King. We thank you for the truths that we've been able to study, that he lived for us, and he died for us, and he was buried, and he rose again on the third day for us to give us eternal life. We thank you for sharing those truths with us. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, he would give us such a passion, such a desire, proclaim those truths with others. That it it would just be overflowing from our lives. These marvelous truths of who Jesus is and what this glorious salvation that we have, how, how wonderful it is that it would just be overflowing from us. Help us to to put off the fears, the anxieties that hinder us from being those who go. And help us to be faithful in following Jesus. Help us to live lives of true discipleship. Learning from him. Being taught by him. Being changed by him. And then taking that message and sharing it with others. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you so much for this time. I ask your blessing upon my brothers and sisters. Take your word and use it in their lives. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.